Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Oh, so glad you guys are with us tonight. Um, if you have a Bible, you can take that out. Uh, question as we begin, has anyone ever been hit so hard that you've been disoriented? Um, maybe you played football, maybe you've been surfing and you paddled out on a day way too big for you. Uh, there's just these moments that you're like, I did not see that coming, and you don't know which way is up and which way is down. Uh, the, probably the worst time this ever happened to me was in the uh, extreme sport, full contact sport of preaching. Um, I was preaching about 10 years ago at our college group, and all of a sudden, the room just starts spinning. And I'm like, that was weird. I kind of grabbed this, my podium and let it stop and kind of move on. I'm like, that was super bizarre. Next morning, I woke up, felt fine, went to, went to the office, was in a staff meeting, and all of a sudden, like, bam, like, I'm spinning. And I'm like, what in the world? I, like, lay down on this couch. They're, like, bringing me bananas because that's, like, a thing, I guess. Like, you know, like, those people are like, here, have you, had, have you had a potassium lately? I'm like, no, never. And so I'm, like, eating, like, I'm like, well, what in the world? So I go to the doctor and like, oh, you have pretty severe vertigo. And for about a couple months, I could, couldn't drive some days. I was sleeping like way more than I normally would. It's the only time I could find relief. And I went to doctor after doctor. And they finally, like, okay, you need to go see a specialist. Um, it was debilitating. It was so bad. And they're asking questions like, were you in a car accident? I said, no. Did you hit your head? No. And for me, in my, in my case, my interaction with vertigo is caused by stress um, from, the, from the loss, the tragic loss of Jen's dad. And all of a sudden, what was happening internally was manifesting itself in my body. And, I was, and it was completely just, it was awful as hell on earth. And so I'm, I'm with this specialist, and she starts to describe me like, well, what's happening when you have vertigo is in your inner ear, you have this liquid that operates as your equilibrium. And so if someone's blind, they can still kind of tell which way is up and down. But if you get in a car accident, hit your head, sometimes even stress, particles can break loose in that water, and it bumps up against the sides, and it makes you feel the sensation as if you're spinning or the room is moving. So even if your eyes are saying things are straight, you're literally collapsing because you're preparing to fall. This is the weirdest sensation. And so she's describing, she's like, but here's the, the good news is, is your inner ear has a canal. And if we maneuver your head just right, we can get these particles out. I'm like, awesome. Like, can you please do that? She's like, yeah, it's going to suck. I'm like, okay. And so she's like, okay. Um, she, has, she lays me down on this bed and she takes this, this machine, puts it behind my ear and it just starts vibrating. And my vertigo goes crazy. I'm literally just screaming like a little girl in like this room, like, ah, make it stop. And she's like, okay, well, hold on. And she starts dipping the table upside down. I'm like, what are you doing? And, and, she, and she starts maneuvering my head in different, different ways. And I, the only way I can describe it is it felt like the, the room was turning in on itself. I literally am like, I'm dying. I'm going to die. Like something bad is happening right now. And as the room is just going like this, I kid you not, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, it's, it's better. And she's like, she's like, did it work? I'm like, yeah, what? I don't know what you did, but like, it's, I can see straight. And she's like, great. And she's like, you know, I'm like throwing that thing off and I'm like sitting up straight. I'm like, whoa, like first time in two months I had any sense of relief. 
And, um, and after that point, it's, it wasn't completely gone, but it's so much better. Um, Ten years later, I still, um, I, it's why I drink decaf coffee, because caffeine affects it. So everyone, like, have you ever ordered decaf coffee and people look at you like you're not even a person? <laughs> I'm like, people don't talk about the hate culture behind decaf coffee, but it's, it's a thing. It's a thing, okay? So I'm a person too, okay? I'm allowed to like coffee, even if it's decaf. Anyways, tangent. The reason I bring up this story is, is this uh, text we're going to be reading tonight comes at a point in history when the nation of Israel is completely disoriented. They have gone from their sense of reality and peace to a place of chaos and everything is upside down and they are grasping for a sense of identity and reality. And Jesus shows up with a promise of reorienting what has been disoriented. But the text, the message that they're hearing feels worse before it feels better. It's that same sensation, I'm sure, as they would have heard these words that we're going to be reading tonight. It would have felt like me upside down with a machine strapped to the back of my ear. It would have just felt like, how is this helping? But if you sit with the reality of these words, your soul will become reoriented. I love the Christmas story. I love Advent. It never gets old for me because it's just that wondrous. I never, the thought of God leaving his throne to become incarnate as a human being just never gets beyond me. But normally we spend time focusing on the intimate details of a virgin giving birth and shepherds and wise men, which are all so significant. But John tells a different side of the story. He tells us what's happening at a much larger view What's happening in the cosmos? What's taking place at, at, at a massive historic perspective? And so we're going to be reading that tonight. But as we read this, uh, I want you to read it through the lens that Israel would have felt. This disorient that these words, although we find hope in them now, would have just felt so off. In John chapter 1 verse 9, it says that the true light, speaking of Jesus that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace, or grace upon grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Three things that we're going to be focusing on tonight that 
that John tells us Jesus is doing is number one, Jesus is God's gift that allows us to become children of God. Secondly, Jesus is God's gift, or I'm sorry, Jesus is God's glory among us. And thirdly, Jesus is God's grace upon grace towards us. Let's begin uh, with this first one, which according to John is the most significant thing we could grasp in everything we've talked about. It all comes to a head right here. In order to prove this, we have to understand a little bit of the literature that's taking place here. There's something called a chiastic structure. And a chiastic structure is an ancient way to make a point. It's often used in poetry. It's used in the book of Revelation. It's used when Peter gives his sermon on the day of Pentecost, it all comes back to this literary structure called the chiastic structure. I'm going to show a graph on the screen right now. This is the first chapter of John. Um, It reads much more clearly in the Greek, but in English you can get an idea for it. And what happens in this structure is you're building a case, and once you get to your central thesis or theme, you begin to work backwards, complementing the points behind it. Uh, Again, we don't really use this much in our Western literature, but this is a very common way that anyone who would have been reading this 2,000 years ago would have immediately been drawn to not the opening point or the closing point like we would in our Western culture, but to its central point, which is found in verses 12 and 13. When it says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, and here it is, to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. This, for John, is the main point. We have been given the gift through Jesus Christ to become and to live in the reality that we are children of God. Now, I mentioned how this this news, this theme, this point that John is trying to make would have taken their disorientation and made it worse at first grasp is because for the Jewish audience who would have come across this teaching, whether it was through passing on through an oral tradition or they would have read this somewhere, This would have felt incredibly um, disarming and it would have felt incredibly invasive because the, the Jewish people owned the title children of God. It was theirs. And at this point in their history, not much was theirs. Their national identity had been stripped from them. Their temple had been destroyed many times over. Their taxes were paid not to the temple but to Caesar. Their their cultural heritage was under siege. But what they had were very few things that they're grasping onto. One of them being this sense that, well, we're God's children. We're Abraham's children. This is our history. This is our heritage. And here comes John and he makes this pronouncement. No, no, no. Everyone who believes has the right to become children of God. You see how that would have started to peel their fingers off of something that would have felt so secure. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is an interesting time, uh, hundreds of years before this, where the nation of Israel is conceived. You see, God, we're going to do a little bit of history to understand why this is such beautiful and good news 
is the nation of Israel was picked out by God and said, you will be my people, I will be your God, because simply put, they were the weakest nation around. And God chose them, and through the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there became this tribe, and this tribe grew and eventually fell underneath the power of the Egyptian empire. And as they grew, they had no king, they had no nationality, they had no sense of identity, they were just a people that were growing in numeric. And God hears their cry, Yahweh hears their cry, rescues them through his servant Moses out of Egypt, draws them into the wilderness, and he gives them a gift called the law. And the law is something more than rules. Yes, there's 613 of them. But the law is something much more than that. And all sociologists would agree, it is a masterpiece in creating a nation. It gives, them the, it gives them the structure of government. It gives them the structure of worship. It gives them structures of a judicial, judicial system. Everything you need to operate a society, it, God gives them. And it's why the Jewish people revered the law. This is why when David writes about the law, it's not some sort of thing that is, that is making them um, restricted or this, this rigid set of rules. No, for them it was life. No, thank you that you have given us these blue for how to live. But within these blueprints, God in his mercy gave them how to live. They, as the people of Israel, were not able to hold up to their end of the bargain. These rules, these regulations, this rhythm, this way to live was again and again an opportunity for them to live a beautiful, flourishing life and them failing at it. And before you get too judgmental, like, man, bummer for them, Israel is a case study of you. We're all Israel. If you read the Old Testament and if you ever find yourself frustrated at the nation of Israel, just take it and use it as a mirror of your own life and see how much it reflects what you do. Anyone ever read the story about them getting man and all of a sudden they're grumbling and complaining and you're like, gosh, I can't believe them. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, why is my internet slow? Like it's all of us, right? We're all the nation of Israel. And so the Old Testament is a gift, twofold. One, it gives us this beautiful picture of what could be, but it also reveals our inability to fulfill it. It's a gift, but it's not the gift that you, in the way you would think of it. But in the middle of the, this gift, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, as the law is being given, as the temple and the tabernacle is being set before them, it gives the very first time in all of the Bible it tells us you are the sons and daughters of the Lord your God. What beautiful language to a nomadic tribal culture. We're God's children. But then here comes John hundreds of years later at the advent of Jesus coming to earth and he says everyone who believes has the right to become children of God. And so you, you can imagine, this is, this is good news if you're on the outside. This is frightening news if you're on the inside. And so John lays out three specific things of, well, children of God, you become a child of God through these three things. This isn't, this isn't a three easy step kind of deal. But these are the three kind of words that John focuses in on. The, num- the first word of our stepping into being a child of God is the word receive. For those who receive, I'm just going to read that to you again in John chapter 1, verse 12, he said, to all who do receive him, to those who believed in his name. This Greek word for receive, 
paralambano, means to come alongside, to take, or to receive as a gift. And I find it interesting that this is his opening idea of what it means to become a child of God, you have to receive, is because my kids are incredibly gifted at receiving. Anyone else's? Like, my kids are wired to receive. I mean, the minute they see an Amazon truck driving by, they're like, is that, is that for me? Is that, a Christmas, is that a Christmas present? Right, like anything comes near our way. We're walking through Target, you're like, yeah, I saw you look at that toy, Dad. I'm like, I'm not getting you that. Like, what? They're just, everything in their psyche is turned in on itself. Like, oh, I'm, I'm ready to get. Right, the amount of times I, when I wake up in the morning, Dad, Dad, I need cereal. I'm like, pour it yourself. Like, Dad, can you come to this? I mean, it's not, like, they don't ever think twice. I'm like, uh, should I ask? Yes. Like, it's just in them. They want and are wired to receive from the Father. And this is how John breaks it down. Well, you know what childhood, being a child of God looks like? Well, it looks like receiving to everyone who receives, which means that you are not the giver. You are the receiver, right? You are not the one who produces something. You're the one who inherits something. Well, how do we receive? How do we receive this gift of being a child of God? Well, he tells us, thank God, and it's through belief. The only thing we add to this is belief. We believe that this gift is for us. We believe that Jesus has made it all possible. But I want to stop us right there because the Greek word for belief is different than how you and I, when I just say the word belief, immediately it's an intellectual thing. Like if you're, and even we say, are you a believer or non-believer? Most of the time we're thinking, do you agree with me or not? But the Greek word for belief has very little to do with intellectual assent and has a lot to do with trust. The Greek word pastuyo, if I can describe, the best way I've heard to describe is like this. If there is a bridge, for a Westerner, belief looks like that is a nice bridge, it's the color gray and it exists. For a Judeo, kind of Greco-Roman worldview, belief looks like there's a bridge. I'm going to walk across it, and I'm going to put my weight on it and see if it's a bridge. It doesn't come through inspection or analyzation. It comes through weight you place on it. Does this work? And so what, what is our response to being a child of God? Well, we receive, but we receive through belief. And our belief looks like we go and we place our trust, our faith, on the reality of who Jesus is and see if it stands. And again, my children are so gifted. Children are so gifted at trust. There's something inside of us that becomes jaded as we get older where we become skeptic and cynics and it, and it crushes things like imagination and creativity but there's something about kids that just trust they haven't been wronged yet they haven't they haven't been cheated yet so when you tell them something their their ability to to automatically place not just like oh good point but to place themselves in that you told me this dad you're right it's pastuyo belief and putting weight on this. And this is what Jesus, this is what John is revealing to us about our, our inheritance to being adopted and becoming a child of God. And the last thing he says, for everyone who receives has the right through belief to, I'm sorry, through belief has the right to become children of God. The, the second, the, I'm sorry, the third word is this word right. 
we have the right to become children of God, which is a fascinating concept. Immediately when I read that, I'm like, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. As a pastor, I'm like, I bet it means this. You know, like I've read enough commentaries and didn't know things. I'm like, I bet this is probably what it means. And I was so wrong on this. I assumed that the word right was some sort of certificate, like an adoption certificate or some sort of seal, like, oh, we're children of God, and this is kind of the stamp of that. And it actually isn't used like that. If you look at the word ekosia, that's this word right, how it's used and translated in Greek literature, specifically in the, in the New Testament, 90% of the times it's attached to the word authority. So you could read it like this. We have the authority to become children of God, which is kind of a weird sentence, um, which is probably why most of the translators don't translate it like they would translate it every other time it's used. But as it's being written out here, I, I think there's something else it's important for us to understand that us being a child of God is not just some stamp we get because we believed something. No, it's in our trust that we now have authority to walk in this new identity as children. Um, th- this week I was walking my kids home from school and, and sometimes we'll pick them up, but we live, we live close enough that every once in a while we can, just, we can walk home and I'm walking home and since all the rain, there's these little like yellow sour flowers that pop up and our six-year-old Vienna just grabs a whole bunch of them and she's like chewing on these sour flowers and I'm watching her walk in front of me and I'm holding her backpack and she's like has these flowers and she's like the quintessential like little girl kid thing. She's literally like kind of spinning around and dancing, chewing on flowers. I'm just like watching her walk. And I feel like the Holy Spirit as I'm prepping for this sermon says that is what it looks like. She's walking in the right and the authority she has as your daughter. She's near you. You're holding her backpack. She's not fearful. She's, she's enjoying the beauty of life. And I'm, I'm observing this beautiful moment. And this is, and it's just the Holy Spirit's like this. Because I was, I was I'm like, what does that look like to walk in the right or the authority of being a child? And I'm like, it's, oh, it's that. It's this, it's this incredibly vivid picture of of just hope and life and vibrancy and joy, untainted by the realities. There's probably things all around us right now that are filled with brokenness and darkness. And for her, she's so enraptured in the present and the presence of her father that none of that matters. A.W. Tozer says, Now, as always, God discloses himself to babes and hides himself in thick darkness from the wise and the prudent. We must simplify our approach to him. We must strip down to essentials, and they will be found to be blessedly few. We must put away all effort to impress and come with the gillis candor of childhood. If we do this without doubt, God will quickly respond. John Piper says, A cry for help from the heart of a childlike believer is sweet praise in the ears of God. Nothing exalts him more than the collapse of self-reliance. I'm just going to stop right there. That's the part of the quote I wanted to hear. Nothing exalts him more than the collapse of self-reliance. This is why this is such a beautiful and yet audacious 
statement. Everyone has the right to become children of God through receiving this gift through belief in him. And so my encouragement to you this morning in this Advent season is to step into your childhood, step into your spiritual sonship and daughtership that God has given you through the incarnation. You have that right. Walk in that authority. It's so easy for us to just move away from the simplicity of what it means to be a child in the presence of our Father. And my prayer, I just love just the wording of that. My prayer is for the collapse of our self-reliance and for us to rest in the reliance, the pastuyo, the trust that we can place in God our Father through Jesus' gift that he gave us. John continues when he starts talking and he kind of expands on this and he, and he starts really hitting home specifically to his Jewish listeners about some things, again, like we talked about, that, that title, child of God, it was theirs. Well, he starts to mess with it even more. When he starts writing in chapter 1, verse 14, He says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have received grace. So I want to stop right here. There's, there's three words right here that are just like these loaded, loaded words that John's throwing around here. The first one, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt. So we're going to unpack what is this idea of dwelt. Secondly, he starts talking about glory. And lastly, he talks about fullness. All of these words are, are tabernacle exodus words. Remember us talking about God making this, this people out of Egypt and he gives them everything they need to become a people group and, and, and a nation. He gives them the gift of the law. Well, at the core of that was this idea that God was going to be in their midst. So he gave them this instruction to build a tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a mobile temple. And so they would set up these tents and God's glory, which is in either in, in a pillar of fire or in cloud at that time, would rest where the tabernacle was. So they would set it up and then all of the tents of the Israelites would face the tabernacle. And so they would know, and when the cloud moved, they would move with it. Everywhere the presence of God would go, they would, they would, they would just set up right there. And there's this story when they first built the tabernacle that I want to read to you in Exodus chapter 40 of the very first time they built this tent for the presence of God. And I want you to hear some of the words that are being used here because when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt, that word dwelt, catch this, is the word tabernacled. It's the verb form of the noun tabernacle. So when you think of the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh, he incarnated and he dwelt. He tabernacled amongst us. And we've seen his glory and the fullness of God. I want you to keep that in mind when we read Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. 
and the glory of the Lord filled it, filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. And so here at the kind of the epicenter of the, of the Jewish faith, there is this idea of God's glory. It's the Hebrew word Shekinah, God's glory that would come and it would indwell in a specific geographical location and all the people of Israel would surround that location because that's where God was. Or all of a sudden John's writing says, listen, let me tell you something. This light that came into the world has given every single person who receives this gift the right to become a, children, a child of God and they do this Because the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. And we've seen the glory of God in all of its fullness. And I want you to to catch what a radical notion this was for a disoriented people. That they're saying, God, where are you? We We thought we were your people. Save us again. And John starts to write and he says, let me tell you that this time God is not just showing up in a cloud. He's showing up in a person and he's not inviting you to come to a place. He's coming to you. And as he's coming to you, he's bringing the fullness of God. And this fullness of God that is coming is the glory that used to rest upon the temple is now resting in the person of Jesus and it's a gift for everyone. And this is why Jesus would spend time in the temple but then he would go out and he'd find time with the lepers and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people who were never allowed in, he went to and said, I'm for you. This is the gift of Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. This has been the story of God from the beginning of Scripture to the end, that when we didn't deserve it, God showed up anyways. And at the climax of the story, he shows up through the person of Jesus and says, everything you've witnessed from afar, I'm going to show up you in with flesh on. I'm going to show you as in personal way. And there's no one far enough out that doesn't have access to this. Everyone's in. Everyone's in. If you receive through belief this gift, then the full glory of God is now dwelling through the person of Jesus, and it's here. This is the, is the powerful and incredible and humbling message of, of Jesus coming to earth. And even us in this room, I mean, think about this. 2,000 years later, on the opposite side of the world, we're gathering at a, at a service at 5 p.m. to talk about something that is this radical. We can't, get, we can't get enough of it. And John summarizes it like this in, in verse 16. It says, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. We're going we're gonna to end our evening talking about this idea, which, I mean, ah, man, I just can't get enough of it. We have been given through the fullness of God, grace upon grace. And so John does something here really interesting. He starts talking about the law. He says that, and he, and he calls it, that was a grace. Grace just means gift. That was a gift. But the problem with that gift of the law, it was contingent on our own strength and ability to fulfill it. And so although the law came through Moses, he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's amazing about the grace that Jesus brings means that it's not contingent on your ability to live it out. Now it doesn't mean it doesn't change how you live. But it just means that it comes, period, no matter what. And he's, and he's contrasting this thing. The, the last thing Israel was grasping onto was the law and living according to the law. Hence birthed the whole group of people called the Pharisees. It said, if we just live it rightly, we'll change this time. And God says, no, don't you get it? You have an entire history of humanity of, of them not changing long term, maybe for a generation. But we can't. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to become as righteous as we need to to be in right relationship with God. And so what does Jesus do? He sends grace. And the law, although it was a gift for a time, it was a gift in that it showed us that we can never be enough, but Jesus is enough. And so I think for all of us, and now we, we might not be concerned about these 613 Levitical laws and trying to not eat certain things and trying to eat kosher and obey Sabbath laws. I, I don't see anyone in the room who's um, anxious about that. But I think for many of us, we've taken the concept of the law and we have allowed that to infiltrate even our faith in Jesus Christ, where we've said, yeah, I believe in grace and I need to make sure I read the Bible enough or else I feel really guilty yeah, I understand the grace of Jesus, but I have to infuse my own sense of morality in that as well. Oh, the grace is great, but there's this sense of my own self-righteousness I have to preserve or else that's in jeopardy. And the scandal of it all is none of this is even in Scripture. It just says, no, 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 you don't understand. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is what he gives. And so what I want... What I want to do is I want to read you this quote by Matt Chandler when he says, without a heart transformed by the grace of Christ, we just continue to manage external and internal darkness. We're just trying to make things a little less dark inside and a little less dark outside, but unless a heart is truly transformed by the grace of Christ, it's just managing those things. So let me just give you some verbiage for those of you who are like, well, what, what is this idea of the law and grace and Jesus coming as grace upon grace? Let me just read this to you guys. The law is performance-oriented. Grace is position-oriented. The law is conditional, but grace is unconditional. The law produces fear where grace produces freedom. The law judges but the grace of Jesus intercedes. The law pronounces guilt, but grace makes us blameless. The law is defeating while grace is victorious. The law demands righteousness, but the grace of Christ grants us righteousness. The law kills, but grace brings life. The law enslaves, but grace liberates. The law satisf satisfies the flesh, but grace satisfies the soul. 
The law strengthens religion, but grace strengthens relationship. The law demands punishments, but grace demands pardon. The law says do, and grace says done. The law says work, grace says walk. The law says get, grace says grateful. The law says behave, grace says believe. The law says stop, and grace says stands. The law will alienate, but the grace of Jesus always accepts. Tim Keller says those who believe they have pleased God by the quality of their devotion and moral goodness naturally feel that they and their group deserve deference and power over others. The God of Jesus and the prophets, however, saves completely by grace. He cannot be manipulated by religious and moral performance. He can only be reached through repentance, through the giving up of power, If we are saved by sheer grace, we can only become grateful, willing servants of God and everyone around us. I'm going to invite Matt to come on up. Amen. I've been praying for you guys this week. I've been praying, myself included, that we would just have our hearts reoriented tonight. As so many of us have experienced soul trauma that's left us with spiritual vertigo. Which way's up and which way's down? It's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of me and we're just trying to make sense of it tonight. And my prayer is that as we understand the radical truth of these scriptures, that although it might feel uncomfortable, it would set us straight. It would reorient us around grace. It would reorient us around the fullness of God through the person of Jesus. It would reorient us around our identity as children of the God of heavens and the earth. Would you do me a favor? Would you stand to your feet? I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us. And as I do, I I want us just to and as as best as we can, let's let's just stand before God with honesty. Let's stand before God with this sense of our own disorientation, of being tired from our own self-righteousness or our own religious spirit, our, our, our sense of being lied to. Oh, I'm, just, I'm not good enough. And all of that stuff we've just compiled, would we just welcome grace upon grace upon grace tonight? the person of Jesus. So Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight. Everyone in this room, every soul, Lord Jesus, that's here, and we confess, much like the nation of Israel, God, that we are a fickle people. Lord, we want one thing and we do another. We hear a message like this and it resonates in our souls. At the same time, we continue to choose out of our own strength, morality, self-righteousness. And Lord, we're asking right now through the Holy Spirit, would you wash all of it away? Lord, I pray that you would let us recapture the gift 
of being called your children. Lord, I pray that you would let us be moved. Lord, that you are Emmanuel. You are the God that is with us and for us at our weakest and most desperate spots. You are in our midst. And Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that at the end of the day, when we stand in your presence, it is not contingent on anything I have done or not done, said or not said. It is contingent on grace and grace alone. And because of that, Lord, you have all of my faith and all of my trust. Lord, we, we repent we turn. Again, maybe this is a thousandth time, Lord God. I know, I know for me, I, this is a daily routine of mine of just saying, oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm, I'm doing it again, aren't I? I'm not living in grace for myself. I'm not living in grace for others. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would settle our hearts tonight. Let us rest in your love. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. Thank you for the incarnation that cannot be told without rocking us, Lord Jesus, with the reality of your goodness and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.